Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Alrighty, it is now. My mic, not is, okay. my mic sounds kind of funny tonight, doesn't it? It's not okay. It's not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us tonight as we welcome the senior leadership from the awesome Canadian charity, Fuck Cancer, founder and CEO Yale Cohen, and young adult breast cancer survivor Bernadette Leno. Fuck Cancer is a movement that educates people about early detection, prevention, and communication of cancer. Also, in the Survivor Spotlight, Brain Cancer Survivor and TED Fellow, Salvatore Iaconesi. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. All right, and a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Okay. Something is uh, yeah, something, uh, something's oh, awry. It's something, a little high. It's a little high. Something's a little pitchy tonight. I don't know what it is. But it is 104 degrees in this room. It is. I don't know what I... It's I, getting I, hot in I don't here. know what to do. Um, we sound I'll better keep, now, I think. I'll keep hitting buttons and see what happens. Yes, until okay. it breaks. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Annie? I'll keep playing with the I'm buttons. Go- you guys discuss while I play with the buttons. I'm good. How are you, Kenny? I'm doing very well. And uh, we have lovely Maureen Sweet. Hi, everyone. Hello, Maureen. Over, over on the couch. Not really. No, no she's on the chair. Well, yeah. she, Kenny, that's a chair. We know we know that you you know have an adult beverage, but that's a chair. Object identification. Yes, that's okay. Good stuff. Well, I was I was referring to like what was it? Half baked guy on the couch. It's like Maureen on the couch. That's your on air personality yes. nickname. Oh, that's me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had no idea. Is that better? I'll run with it. A little that's, better. That's yeah. a much better. Method. Okay. Not hot. Okay, that's good stuff right there. Ah, okay. Well, we were discussing what to talk about during the top of the show here, Mm -hmm. and there has been no major cancer news this week. There really hasn't. There's been a lot of, like, Lance Armstrong post-apology fallout blogs, which are really interesting to read. What do they say about no news? No No news news is is good good news with Gary Ganews. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing I saw out there was, uh, you know, I'm always into the breast cancer studies, since I, you know, that's what I had. And there was one study that there's always conflicting information and one of them was how lumpectomies are better than mastectomies so because apparently better in what sense better as in your survival rate and a lot of mastectomies are on the rise as women always do that to improve their overall survival rate and you know i didn't have a choice and i'm BRCA one if you don't know what BRCA one is it is the genetic mutation that a lot of people have um not a lot. A lot of women with breast cancer, younger patients with breast cancer have that sh- you know, I had an 87% chance of breast cancer. So I had to have them both taken off because if I just took one, then I would end up getting any other one anyway. So, yeah, 
I don't know. So would you say that a, a double mastectomy is trendy? If I can you just know, inject, inject that adjective. For young adults, yes. Because most of the women who I've met who are young adults who've had breast cancer have almost all had mastectomies. Because one of the things you don't want to deal with is getting a mammogram like every six months and, or even more frequent than that and having a freaking heart attack every time you go in there. Especially because when, when you're young, your breasts are dense, so you get false positives. So if you've already had breast cancer, you get a false positive. It's just, you know, it's scary enough having to worry with just a blood test to put the, you know, extra anxiety on a, on a mammogram is even worse. So you, we were having an interesting discussion before the show started about your, um, what are they called, skin inflators or something? They're called tissue expanders. Tissue expanders. So um, when you have a mastectomy and you have plastic surgery, you're, they give you these little uh, expanders that they stick in place where your breasts were, and they fill them up a little bit of saline. So when you wake up from surgery, you're not totally flat-chested, and then you go in like every week and you get your boobs made a little bigger. And I had to stop for radiation, which made me really sad because I was like, but it's summer. Right. And I had to wear a bathing suit and I wanted to look good. I mean, they're not small, but whatever. And I'm really excited because now that radiation's done and I, you know, wait a little while. I'm allowed to get more ceiling. I have bigger boobs. So I, I asked to ask again, um, do you want to have the same size you used to be? Do you get, yeah. Is this really like a, a, a side benefit, quote-unquote? You get to choose your boobs after you lose your boobs? So one of the, like, so-called bright sides that my doctor was, like, trying to pump me, the day after diagnosed with cancer, you're, like, reeling. But one of the things that I tried to pump me up with was telling me about all the, you know, how perfect my plastic surgery boobs are going to be. Right. So I remember she's like, you get to pick your size. I was like, okay, that's exciting. And they were like porn perky too, right? Yeah, they're like they're like really porno perky, which is kind of fun. It's a good right. thing we fired human resources. <laughs> <I know. laughs> human, re- human resources took a walk. Yeah. The, the whole so, department just left. So, yeah, so I don't ever have to wear a bra, which is kind of nice too because I can wear fun backless things that I wasn't ever able to wear before. Oh, that's really nice. I yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... And I saved a lot of money at Victoria's Secret. And when I go running, I don't have to wear a bra either. So that's exciting. I used to wear two. I used to wear two sports bras. Now I wear zero. Wait, they don't like really bounce up. And no, they don't move. That's, they don't move at all. That's they're beautiful. just like they're just kind of there. They're so like furniture. Yeah, wow. exactly. They're decorate. They're for decoration. <laughs> Matthew and I have uh, expanders of a different kind. It's, it's called uh, the burrito from Chipotle. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> It expands we're, we're, the different parts yeah, of our body. Yeah, inject a little bit more each week. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so I'm pretty pumped to get to go a little bigger. I don't know how big I'm going to be able to go just because when you have a mastectomy and they remove so much of your skin, there's only so much that how big that they can go. Um, but I do have two more surgeries on deck, and one is to get the expanders taken out and put in silicone implants, which they tell me are more natural looking and more comfortable. Because you sometimes feel like hard as rocks. And I'm kind of used to it now, but, you know. Do you have, like, really weird, like, Baywatch dreams? What? No. Where, like, or, like, just, like <laughs> you, in your sleep you just see them, like, growing? I haven't had them made bigger in a while, so I'm kind of pumped. But Literally and figuratively. Yeah. What? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited. I have a, I'm having a one-year party coming up to celebrate one-year cancer-free. And, That's very uh, exciting news. This is your... This is your theme song now. This is my theme song? Was it the Baywatch music? No, it's Baywatch. Oh. You're calling it the Pink Party. Yeah, it's called my Pink Party. And it's uh, it's on the 16th. It is and this is your theme song. That's pretty cool. I'm going to wear a pink dress that's like a little... All right, that's going to be Baywatch. distracting. Uh-huh. Is it going to be overly intentionally pink? I don't think so. Like, like satirically gonna... pink? Um, I'm going to wear a pink dress just because, I mean, you know what, though? I wore pink before, but now I just think about it all the time because I'm like, God, people are going to think I'm wearing pink just because, like, I'm that girl who had breast cancer. <laughs> but, you know, pink's a good color, especially bright, hot pink. It's just a fun color to wear. I'm going to get some cupcakes, and some will have pink frosting. But I don't want my party to be like Barbie's dream house. Right. Because that's, like, really not my thing. Okay. So we'll see. We'll see exactly how much pink there will be. Do you have a venue picked out? I do. It's going to be down, It's going to be at Gallery Bar in the city. Where's that? It's on... Um, uh, it's uh, 120 Orchard. Yeah. Yeah. Kenny with the Dr. Google I know. Map. I was like, whoa. Yeah. It's 
of the Lower East Side. So oh, I've, I've been there. It's a, it's a, I've been there it, too. It's a basement, right? No. Haven't you downstairs? slept on their floor? It, yeah. <laughs> it's an art I've been scraped off at 5 a.m. <laughs> like, like it's an, an art gallery by day and a bar by night. I feel like oh, there's like a speakeasy fun. basement. Yeah. Do you know it. there is a basement? That's, I just, that's where I've been. Yeah, I've never been to the basement. I've only been to the upstairs. But they play fun music and right. they're like pretty cool and it's a little, it keeps the bridge and tunnel away. No offense, Kenny. <laughs> but it keeps the, you know, with the neighborhood it's in, the type of place it is, it keeps away the keeps away the youngins who cuz you know I'm 31 so I don't want like a bunch of 22 year olds there. I'm sorry, oh, Ryan. Wow, I've, I've officially yeah. I've officially offended everybody here. So yeah, right. stop talking about yeah the, the commuters, well, the the people off the Manhattan Island. Right. But you're all invited. And I really hope you guys can come. It'll we'll be just, no, I'm not coming. We'll just come with a smirk on our face. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'll wear my Long Island we'll represent shirt. <laughs> <laughs> with your uh with your Long Island Railroad card hanging on your neck. Exactly. Like the guys who go to sleep on the train, leave it so the conductor won't wake them up. Absolutely. Hey guys, I was just informed that uh, our first guest, Salvatore Iacaneski, will not be joining us. He had a uh, uh, an incident with something heavy. Oh no! <laughs> That's a, a terrible rumor to spread. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did want to just talk briefly about him because he is a brain cancer survivor. I have a sort of a kinship for these types of people, uh, being that I am one. And he's a really smart guy. He's a TED fellow. TED for you out there is like this uber professional, super executive CEO kind of speaking talk engagement thing. I go to TEDTalks.com, and uh, he's an artist, and he's a technologist. He's like a, a nerd geek programmer guy, and he has a program called Art is Open Source. He teaches digital design at La Sapienza at the University of Roma. Uh, his medical records are publicly available <laughs> At artisopensource.net slash cure. I don't that's, know if I'd ever super, want... That's super e-patient. That's super e-patient. Yeah, just know I have my blood test that, today. That's WikiLeaks meets <laughs> e-patient. <laughs> that's really bad news. Um, he spoke at TEDx and Transmedia, and he's uh, independently organized in Rome. Um, and he's just wonderful. You know, I'll just read you the first paragraph from the CNN piece that he had. Um, this was shocking news. Sitting across from a doctor holding a clinical folder with your name on it. And hearing him say the words, low-grade glioma, language and comprehension areas of your brain, surgery, and chemotherapy. Hearing him say those words is a very weird experience. My first idea was to seek other options. Maybe this hospital was wrong. Maybe there are other places that wouldn't need to do surgery. Maybe there is a laser, a freaking laser with sharks and a, a chemical, an ancient tradition, a shaman, a scientist, a nanorobot. I felt incomplete about the way that the medical system was handling my situation. So being diseased is like a state of suspended life. Can I work, have fun, be creative? Not really. When you are declared diseased, you become a set of medical records, therapy, dosages, exam dates. It's as if you disappear, replaced by your disease. I immediately asked for my clinical records in digital format and left the hospital. Stay wow. tuned. So he's really a bit of a nerd. He he took all of his stuff and he worked on this this crazy art project based on his art as open source because he saw his mm -hmm. experience as art worth sharing with the public. It's open to everyone that wants to understand it. And I don't know if you read the whole CNN piece, but... He's really talking about like you know how genetic genetics and genetic scientists and how we can work all the this new fangled understanding of the human genome into math and art. Really wonderful guy. I'm sorry he couldn't be on the show tonight. So we have um, probably a good 15 minutes to just make up anything we want to talk about. Well, Matthew, tissue expanders notwithstanding. Yeah. Well, it was really cold last week in New York City. Okay. Like brutally cold. I want to take questions from the chat room. Oh, we can do that. We can talk about the cold too, but it's like was it went from like six degrees to forty degrees. We today. take a caller. We I don't think we can take callers. I think we can. All right. What are some questions in the chat room? All right. Well, let's see. Anyone in the chat room has a question, we'll take it. But Kenny, you were on vacation. I was. I went down to Charleston, South Carolina, for a, a nice weekend away. Apparently, it was about seventy-five degrees right before I got there, and it's going to be seventy-five degrees tomorrow. But while I was there, it was between late. Upper 40, late. late, 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 late 40s. The late 40s, right, exactly. <laughs> Upper 40s uh, with a high of around 60. So it was nice. It wasn't quite 
I'd have to ditch my hoodie. I, I have separation anxiety around uh, April and, and May, and, and then of course June when it gets super hot here in the city. But I, I did enjoy the benefit of wearing a hoodie and being pleasantly uh, not freezing. And Charleston, huh? Charleston's a great city. It's uh, everything that I guess they claim it is. It's very historical. It, it reminded me of Lower Manhattan, cobblestone streets, one-way streets, very small. And uh, I went to a different, couple of different uh, prohibition bars and, and little establishments where it, it, you don't know what it is from the outside, and then you walk in and you're like, oh, what's on tap? So right. it was a nice weekend. What was on tap? I saw something on Facebook called the Beer Exchange. Yeah, so they have a Charleston Beer Exchange, uh, which is a super fancy beer distributor, but it's very well done, very high-end. You won't find Bud Light there. We just lost Bud Light as a sponsor. Okay. Um, <laughs> they have, you know, growlers and, and taps and, I mean, it's any... Are you stumbling for liter- for literacy tonight? Uh, a little bit, considering the fact that I got up at 4 a.m. And you're drinking <laughs> a beer on the air. And I'm drinking a beer on the air, but that has nothing to do with it, <laughs> okay, as, as I put it down. Of course not. Fantastic. Yes. All right. Well, all right. I guess we can talk about... Well, actually, I have more questions about this uh, triple negative, yeah. uh, the skin expander stuff. The stigma, yeah. like you said... Um, it's almost like I can't help but think that you know the stigma of breast cancer is always going to be with you with fake boobs because then people mm-hmm. might think you had them done. Yeah. When in fact you didn't. You you, you did have them done, but you had them done because the real ones tried yeah. to kill you. Right. That is true. That's what I was telling you. And there was like a T-shirt that says "Yes, they're fake" because the real ones tried to kill me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, people like I do get a little self-conscious sometimes at the beach because my cleavage is like not found in nature. Just because when you have uh, breast implants, when you have a natural breast. Not found in nature. Yeah. When you have like a regular, you know, implant, just because you want to go larger, you do have a little bit of a natural look. But when you have fake ones because you had a mastectomy, you look a little jaywow. And that's a little bit of the issue of I don't want to go too big because then they just look like melons underneath my skin. Because there's nothing, you know, it's just pure saline. And then you'd be in the the uh, the Pamela Anderson world, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to avoid. So we'll see. We'll see how. We'll see what the plastic surgeon has to say. Yes, Kenny. So you're going away. Yes, I actually. This is a good thing to talk about. I am part of a um, a work group, a clinical work group for Johns Hopkins University. As if you don't have enough to do. Because hmm. I'm not busy. Um. So. I guess uh, I'm driving down to Baltimore. I'm going to see Allie Ward, our program director, for mm-hmm. a little while. Then I'm going to go to John Hopkins. John's Hopkins, plural. I keep forgetting that. And on Wednesday, I will be in an all-day meeting for this wonderful, like, massive uh, grant. Uh, I don't know. Like, John Hopkins got this huge grant about fertility or something, mm-hmm. and I'm on this, this uh, board of advisors, going to see a lot of people I know. It's a big deal. You know, there's been a lot of fertility grants going on in the last couple of months. UCSD got one, mm-hmm. Michigan got one, and uh, now Johns Hopkins got one. And I think it's research around fertility, fertility preservation, fertility rights, technology, infrastructure. It's all good stuff. It's like in the name of progress for young adults. That's all really interesting. Yeah, fertility, it's very cool. Yeah, fertility is one of the biggest. It's still like a thorn on my side, the whole fertility thing, because that's all doctors you don't want to talk about, but... You know, well, what do you suppose thing? that is? Well, okay. Is it because they don't want to admit they don't know? No. Or they're uncomfortable because th- you're a girl and they're a guy? What I think the issue is, at least with me specifically, is my doctors are, I mean, I have the opposite. It's not a problem. I have the opposite. Where most, most people who undergo cancer treatment, their biggest complaint is that they their doctors didn't bring up the fertility issue. Mine keeps bringing it up, and I don't want to go through fertility treatments right now. I mean, I don't know, maybe in a few years, but not right now. And they keep bringing it up. Like, I guess I think I might regret it later that I'm making a decision in haste and I'm going to regret it in a few years or whatever. But, yeah, I don't really want to do it. It's so expensive and it's invasive and I don't know. It's it's a lot to think about and I just don't feel comfortable with it right now. And they keep asking me. I said, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Please move on. Thanks. Well, I was just having a conversation with somebody, I forget who, Diagnosed with breast cancer in like 22. Mm-hmm. I really, I was a, recently, and of course I can't remember who the hell it was. But she was talking about how like, like 
our doctors were a little too aggressive with mm-hmm. the fertility conversations, yeah. and she was like, "I'm only 22." You know, I don't want to think about it. I that, don't know. Yeah, that was kind of my thing too. And I'm only I'm 31, so I can't even imagine how it feels at 22. But I was like unbelievably overwhelmed. I was like, I don't even have. I don't have a husband. I don't have a fiance. This is quite the decision to make when I'm on my own, and I just. I don't know. I didn't want to go through. I've seen people go through hormone treatments and fertility treatments, and you get a little crazy. And the last thing I needed was crazy, a type of cancer crazy. So, yeah, I opted not to do it. But I feel like they were a little pushy, but I think they're pushy because they don't want you to regret anything. Right. So then there's the balance. Yeah. Which is there's always the balance of give, helping you make an informed decision and the and the pushing of the. Do it. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure this is the right thing, right decision for you? Yes, I'm positive. Thanks. Move on. Right, exactly. Let's talk about other aspects of my treatment and survivorship and things like that because I've told you a million times that, you know, how I started feeling one day, I'll deal with it when I'm raised our family. Not to be like corny, like, oh, it's in God's hands, but I just didn't, I couldn't make the decision right now. And I still don't want to make that decision and I've moved on from it. But, the fertility programs are out there are amazing, and people are really, you know, some people are the, most people I've met feel the exact opposite of me. They want um, to do fertility treatments as soon as possible, and it's very important to them. So it's very, there's a lot of good programs. Fertile Hope is amazing, and all these other programs out there to help that, which uh, help people, especially giving grants because it's right. so unbelievably expensive. Well, you got money from Fertile Hope. They offered me money. I didn't take okay. it. Okay. Yeah, I was offered I was offered I think three thousand dollars in Fertile Hope for fertility treatments, but then I decided not to. So you know, I figured you know that's a lot of money, and the money is better off given to someone who's going to use it. Interesting. And who actually feels strongly about wanting to get fertility treatments and freeze embryos and freeze eggs, and I just did it or you know freeze sperm, and I just didn't feel that strongly about it. So I felt like it was a little bit unfair and greedy of me to take the money. Very noble. Yeah. Very noble. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So we'll see. Maybe I'll regret it in 10 years, but for now, it was a decision I had to make. Yeah. I mean, it's so different for guys, mm-hmm. and I don't think the public really understands how much different it is. Oh, I know who I was talking about. I won't mention that. I remember who I was talking about. That all she wanted was to have a child. All mm-hmm. she wanted, her, but not now. Mm-hmm. Not right now. Like, there's no way right now, but it's like, Will she ever? Will she be alive for it? Will she be fertile for it? Right. What, what, you know, and it's like I obviously cannot put myself in the role of the female in this mm-hmm. situation, but as a guy, you know, I was diagnosed at 21. The last thing on my mind when I was 21 was mm-hmm. being a dad. Right. I mean, I didn't come to death until I was 36. Right. You know, so long time between then and now. Mm-hmm. So I guess they do their best. Yeah. We try. They do. They do their. They try their best to make sure that everyone's informed and they do what's right. But then you have the other hand, which is people who are given no choice and not given any information, and then they have a lot of regrets. Well, we're doing a show uh, in two weeks mm-hmm. about surrogacy. Yeah. And we'll feature my friend and stupid cancer show um, uh, alum. Her name is Jen Rackman. Jen had cervical cancer. Oh, sorry, ovarian cancer mm-hmm. when she was very young. And she had a hysterectomy during her procedures, right. and she woke up and she couldn't. She's gone, You're you know. Right, right. So she didn't even have the chance to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, lo and behold, it took many, many years. But she now is the mother of a of a beautiful boy right. um, through surrogacy with her husband. Uh huh. But it just goes to show, you know, like there's only so much you can do, and it's 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 not quite case by case anymore with a lot of these grants with a lot of these cancer centers and standardizing the process and communications mm-hmm. will, you know, again, it, it just goes back to the fact that it is progress. Yeah. Which absolutely. is good stuff. Anyway. Absolutely. So, anyway, okay, well, no questions from the chat room, but a couple of questions about lizards and shape-shifting people, which is always exciting stuff. Quality submissions from the Internet. Dear Internet. Yes. All right, well, let's uh, let's get to the news. Sorry again, we uh, Salvatore was not able to join us tonight. So here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, Kenny, what is on the calendar? All right, Matthew, coming up, we have a Stupid Cancer meetup on Wednesday night in North New Jersey, followed by one on Saturday, February 2nd in Tempe, Arizona. First one over there. 
uh, here in the city, February 5th. It's a Tuesday night at Sloan Kettering. They have a young adult post-treatment meeting, uh, which is shaping up to be pretty awesome, followed by a meetup in Denver. And then Saturday, February 9th, a special VIP shout-out to North New Jersey. It's the What's Next? How to Get Busy Living Stupid Cancer Northern New Jersey Young Adult Cancer Workshop. Jesus Christ. A lot of, a lot of characters. Take a breath in there. The name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You'll be speaking. There will be a lot of excellent guests, and it's, uh, it's a nice opportunity to get out of the city for one okay. for an event. And, of course, uh, don't miss all of our events online. Just go to events.stupidcancer.org. All right, folks, it is here, as we announce every single week, the sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults, April 25th through April 28th at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's April 25, 6, 7, 8. Four days of awesome at one of the largest patient gatherings of its kind in the world. Visit OMG. 2013.org today and learn more about the Players Club, which is an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement by fundraising. That's OMG2013.org. All right, Matt, the Stupid Cancer Store. What do you know about the Stupid Cancer Store? I know that people buy cool stuff on there. People buy really cool stuff at the stupidcancerstore.org. We have t-shirts, wristbands, sunglasses, all sorts of awesome Stupid Cancer And the Stupid Cancer Card is back in stock. The Cancer Card is back in stock. If you have it, play it. Playthecard.org. Indeed. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 4,500 members. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org and sign up with one click through Facebook. Yay! Okay. And that's your Stupid Cancer News. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right. I'm stoked to have these ladies on the show. It's been a long time coming. And I finally met one of them in person. Actually, I met both of them in person, but I, went, oh. I met the one in person that I hadn't met in forever, finally. Got it. I had to go all the way to San Diego to do it. <laughs> okay. Yale Conesy founder, president, and chief cancer fucker of Fuck Cancer, a charity that she started in 2009 when her mother was diagnosed with cancer, astounded to learn that over 90% of cancers are curable. In stage one, she realized that early detection is our only cure right now and that we should be looking for cancer instead of just looking... Okay, looking for cancer instead of just finding it. Okay. Bernadette Leno is a young adult breast cancer survivor, triple negative, who is uh, also Fuck Cancer's office manager, administrator. She is a young adult triple negative survivor since November of 2010 when she's not kicking cancer's ass. uh, (laughs) I love the bio. When she's not kicking cancer in the taint personally or professionally... She creates dark pieces of photographic genius, giving into her DIY jewelry addiction. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Yale Cohn and Bernadette Leno. Ladies. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? How are you? We're pretty good. How are you? Oh, there you are. Here I am. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> now, Yale, you, you travel more than I do, so where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Uh, Carmen San Diego is in Los Angeles this week, this day, I should say. Who knows it will be by the end of the week. Right. <laughs> but and Bernie, that's the joy of a radio show. We can always call in. That's, yeah. the, that's the beauty. We do it for you. <laughs> and Bernie, where are you? Are you in Vancouver? I am in Vancouver, yes. Oh, I forgive you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I actually want to start with Bernie because uh, you may not know this, but Annie is also a triple negative breast cancer survivor. She'll be celebrating her one-year cancer anniversary in about a month. Yep. And, oh, and you know, it's, you. A, it's a small little niche click that you guys have, but it's really wonderful that there are ways for you guys to actually get uh, connected now. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. So why don't you talk us through your story real quick? Um, well, really quick, um, I had moved to Vancouver, and um, I put off uh, doing any sort of uh, – I was really good when I was uh, younger, like with self-exams, and just one day I thought I'd do a self-exam that I hadn't done in a year. And then I had found a lump and uh, just went to the doctor, and he didn't feel anything but sent me for an ultrasound. And what I felt actually wasn't – uh, the tumor, the tumor was actually about half an inch to the left. Hmm. So that sort of started the the whole rigmarole and, and surgeries and chemo and more surgeries. And that leads me pretty much to today. So Kicking it in the taint. Kicking <laughs> it in the taint. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. That's my new band, by the way. Yeah, that's very yeah. funny. It's a great band. <laughs> okay, I didn't even know it's a band. That's amazing. Yeah. No, 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 that's just, I'm going to name my new band. That's my new band. Kick me oh, in the pain. Oh, you're It's going to be a violin quartet. <laughs> All right, so I want to. So, so that's that's really exciting, and and clearly you have a, an affinity for the arts. You're a creative individual. You produce some wonderful um, sort of byproducts of being who you are. Can you talk about the creative process and being who you are, and then going through cancer, and if that transformed you? Um, well, actually, it was kind of funny. Uh, previously, like before cancer, I've always sort of had a dark sense of my creativity. I like sort of warped things. Um, and I did a lot of dark photography before I got diagnosed, and when I was going through chemo, or when I was going to start chemo, I was like, oh my gosh, I'll be able to, like, create really dark things, because chemo is going to do all this crazy stuff to my brain and to my body, Um, but I didn't want to do photography. Um, I bought some paints and canvas and thought, I'm just going to make really dark, abstract art, and I made one piece and said, I hate this, and threw it to the side, and I never touched paints again, so... It wasn't until I was probably about three months post-treatment that I actually started to do my art again. I couldn't do it during treatment. Yeah, I I did the same. I'm assuming we did. You did ACT for triple negative. Sorry? You did the ACT for triple negative. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I yeah. When you go through that treatment, you pretty much don't want to do anything. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So, so how long? So you when did you finish treatment? Uh, my last day of chemo was July twelfth, twenty eleven. Gotcha. Oh wait, twenty yeah, twenty eleven. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, very good. Uh-huh. All right, so yes. I le- yes. And how did you get involved with? How did you find and get involved with suck cancer? Um, I found them. Uh, I found FC pretty much about a, right before I was went in for my first. I had l- a lump to be first. Um, so I found them. I, I, you know, found. The, I wanted a T-shirt. I saw that they were in Vancouver, and and just sort of came to the office and grabbed some shirts. And then um, I followed on Twitter and and on Facebook and saw that they they put a call out for um, an administrator or um, coordinator, and also was looking for an intern uh, for administrative administration. So I had done both because I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to go. Cause I, I was still in treatment, and I didn't know if I could work full-time, and I didn't know if they'd want me because I can't work full-time. So I did both, and um, or sent my resume for both, and I didn't realize it went to the same person. <laughs> and it ended up it ended up being like, hey, like, let's, you know, we want to talk to you about the actual position. And then it just kind of went from there. And, it, you know, when I got it to my phone, like, it was everything I had done in my past, like my past life of, like, you know, a business administrator and, and you know, just admin in general, and it just kind of, happened and I was quite shocked and surprised and every day they come into work I'm still like I have to shake my head some days so well well, Kenny can attest that the first three years before stupid cancer was called stupid cancer it's called the I'm too young for this cancer foundation the first three years I had a fake assistant (laughs) and and he was he existed in 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 the digital space he had a Facebook page a Twitter account he had his own email address and a lawsuit against him (laughs) 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 paternity suit actually and and he he just existed and he was my go-to guy to respond to questions and you know it's just really so I I totally get it and that brings us right to Yale because the the uh, the beginnings of something really awesome and you were inspired as a young adult because of the diagnosis of your parent and I'd love you to just take us down the rabbit hole what were you doing before then how did this affect you and let's talk about the beginnings. Um. Sure. You know, we are, we're still a relatively young organization. We started in 09 when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I was in finance, and I really liked it. It was, it was interesting. It was fun. Um, but as, you know, I'm sure a lot of people know, when, when somebody you love and care about gets diagnosed, a lot of things you used to care about just don't matter as much. Um, and so, you know, in, in between handling mom's treatment, I I kind of just lost the passion for what I was doing and cared really deeply about the cancer space. Um, And especially after learning much more than I ever wanted to about cancer, I I had all this information and I wanted to make sure that we could do something good with it and it could help other people in our position because, you know, I was 
would go to every doctor's appointment with mom and I'd write everything down and I'd explain it to her. And, um, it worried me to think that what if she didn't have, you know, what if I was living out of the country or what if she she didn't have a daughter or a partner or a friend to go through the process with her. So we wanted to create a place where where we could explain, you know, in a more human way what's going on. So you can come and, you know, whether it's finding out what a biopsy feel like, not not just what a biopsy is, or, you know, how to tell your mom you have cancer, or just ways to talk to people that are going through something similar and have, you know, a, a similar perspective, a safe space to have this experience. And, so what uh, kind of, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What no, kind of resources ahead. do you offer, you know, especially to young adult young adults who are going through cancer treatment and who are just diagnosed, you know, when they go to your website, what can they find out? So, you know, our can I swear, by the way? No, go for it. That. Okay, of course just make sure it's their name. <laughs> I'm censoring myself so much. You know, so our website, at, you know, from first glance, you can tell that this is built for the youth. And we wanted to speak to the youth for multiple reasons, and we wanted to speak their language. So it's got humor and wit and edge, and, and it's much more raw and authentic than a lot of the stuff you're going to find from, from huge organizations. And we are not, you know, we focus more on the psychological than the, the physiological. So you're going to find, you know, in our Get Educated section, we've kind of broken it down into three three main categories, prevention, early detection, and cancer. Um, and, you know, early detection was really what created this organization. That was our foundation, um, you know, from, from the day that I started it, and that was because early detection is what saved mom's life, and it made a lot of sense because I'm not a researcher. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't contribute scientifically. I didn't think I could raise the the huge amounts of money needed to, to fund a cure. Uh, but I thought that I could do some good by teaching people, you know, how to how to talk about cancer and how to look for it. So I didn't know how much cancer there was in my family until mom got diagnosed. And sometimes it's things as simple as, you know, your family history, the earliest warning signs, the risk factors. But, you know, as we've grown and progressed as an organization, I'm really, really proud to say that we've said since day one that we would build for the community. We'd build what they asked us for, what they told us they wanted and needed, and what we anticipated they'd want and need. And, you know, we have layered on two really important components over the last few years. The first is prevention, and that is, you know, the pretty simple idea that what you put into and do with your body directly affects your overall health. And it's simple ways to understand some of the huge convoluted bullshit conversations around lifestyles and diets. Um, you know, why do people go paleo? Why do people go vegan? Um, what does alcohol actually do on your body? What does dairy do on your body? And it's, then you make your own decisions. You know, we're not here to tell you how to live. We're just here to, to make the information understandable. So a ton of what we've built has been from medical journals, peer-reviewed medical journals, thousands of pages of them, distilled down to interactive infographics where you can come and understand quickly what you need to know. Um, and the, the second part that we layered on last year and the thing that I'm really most proud of is our communication asset. So that's, you know, as I was saying earlier, how do you, you know, things like how to tell your mom you have cancer, how to tell, you know, your your five-year-old son they have cancer in a way that doesn't make them feel guilty. Um, if you're the patient, how do you how do you ask for the help you need? Um, you know, everything from what to expect to, you know, explaining quite simply what treatments are. Um we aren't creating research. We're not creating anything new. We're basically just humanizing some, some hyper-scientific, dense information because sometimes, you know, you've just gotten the worst news of your life. You're potentially emotionally compromised, and I want to speak to you like I speak to my mom. You're a human, not a patient. So you raised some really interesting philosophical debates. We, we've talked about this briefly in the past, and it was really good to finally meet you in San Diego last fall. The, the 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 dialogue in this country, at least in the U.S., is really kind of changing, and I think this is sort of an outcrop of the this survivorship movement. This notion of that, you know, when the doctor says you're cured, go home. That's not the end of the story. The word cure is not really being used that much anymore, and there's really a focus on the lifestyle of once you're diagnosed. But the flip side is that. It, we're, we're we're moving into more of a language of risk reduction versus prevention, but the public doesn't really understand what risk reduction is because it's too many syllables. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we stick with prevention, but people really, you know, really, what they really mean by prevention is 
try to do stuff that doesn't increase your risk of getting cancer, like bathing in toxic waste. <laughs> like if you don't bathe yeah, in mean, toxic waste. Yeah, I mean, if you could avoid that, that'd be yeah, great. You're, I mean, in my, just from a purely philosophical perspective, the only thing in my mind that is actually preventable is parenthood. Don't I mean, ever have sex with anyone, maybe and not you will middle. never be a father. Yeah, Bernie and I actually have this conversation. We had it a few times recently, and um, you know, it's funny because prevention is one of those words that people are starting to catch on to, and it's you know they're starting to understand. Right. But the reality of it is, nothing we can teach you, nothing we can tell you, is going to 100% prevent cancer. There right. are, it, you know, it's this complex interplay of so many factors. It's genetics, it's environment, it's lifestyle. And prevention in this sense just means stacking the cards in your favor. It means, right. yeah, not bathing in toxic waste. Don't <laughs> don't put chemicals and carcinogens in your, into you and onto your body knowingly. But you also can't go crazy because that would be, a, you know, a pretty psychotic lifestyle if you were concerned with every single thing you did. It's about balancing quality of life with making sure you're not doing stupid shit. Right. Um, and knowing that, you know, and Burns and I were talking about this the other day, that Sometimes, you know, once you've been diagnosed or, or somebody you love has, and, and people very well-meaningly are like, oh, you know, did they, did they smoke or did they, you know, live in this area? Or, or you know, they're, they're trying to point to lifestyle factors. And all you want to say sometimes is like, fuck you. I did nothing to deserve this. I, nothing right. I did gave me cancer. And, and that's, a, you know, that important delineation is that we need to move away from thinking that we can prevent it to knowing that we can reduce our risk, and that's pretty much it right now, unfortunately. And one of the big focuses that you guys do at Fuck Cancer is on the psychosocial side of cancer. Uh, you know, what kind of services, information do you guys put out there to help? Because that's, you know, obviously one of the biggest challenges for young adults is the social aspect of it. You know, so, we have a section in our cancer, you know, in under Get Educated in the Cancer Toolkit, um, in you know, it's called People. And it is basically, you know, how to talk about it. It's just stuff that, it's just stuff that nobody tells you. You know, they tell you about what your treatment plan is going to be or what time you're getting picked up, but they don't tell you how it's going to affect your heart and soul and life and relationships. And we wanted to start opening that dialogue, you know, and it's, it's um, I think it's going to be a slow transition, but if we can start, putting out some of the resources there that give, you know, uh, more solid suggestions and, and steps about support and communication. So I have a question yeah. here. Um, since 2009, have you found more of a trend that you're attracting younger adults doing more self-exams, or do you find yourself seeing young adults, because I know you had a campaign a while ago about talking to your parents about, mm -hmm. you know, being smarter about your risks and getting checked, and I mean, just, just a, as a quick anecdote, they, they was a really, there was a failed attempt here, and a, a very politically incorrect attempt here in, in New York a couple of years ago called Take Your Baby Daddy to the Doctor Day in Harlem, yeah. and yeah. It, it, it didn't do very well, as you can imagine, on any political scale. But is that sort of what your, you know, the, the idea of, of the younger adult child to the boomer parent who may be unaware of self-risk, uh, is, is, have you found that that to be more of a, a sticking point? You know, the sticking point we get with, it, with kids and parents is, is a pretty simple one. It's the idea of, you know, your parents have taken care of you your entire life, and um, due to some, some social factors, our generation is teaching their parents more than any generation ever has. You know, we teach them how to use their smartphones, and, you know, I, I joke what a Kardashian is, but we teach our parents a lot. And we thought if we could make it funny and entertaining um, to teach your parents, you know, how to look for cancer instead of just find it, even things as simple as talk about your family history, you know, finding out from your parents where is the cancer in your family and making sure that they know the cancers they're at highest risk for and they know what the seemingly benign and highly embarrassing early warning signs are. And, you know, that that's a simple first step, but a lot of the time, you know, our new members of the community come to us because they've been diagnosed or somebody they love has been diagnosed. Um, and, and that's why, you know, we're starting to build more on the psychosocial side of it, building resources in a community and, 
you know, we, we'll keep our prevention and early detection resources. Those will always be there. But I think there's only so much you can say on those. Whereas when it comes to building on the psychosocial side, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, we're really excited to do that work with and for our community. Right. And there's a whole movement. And, Bernie, you, I don't know if you know Brad Zebrak. Um, he, Brad is, a, is, I think he's like 50 now, but he was diagnosed with cancer in his 20s. Um, and he's been a, an advisor and a friend of mine for many, many years. He has dedicated his life to young adult psychosocial outcomes. And one of some of the more, more comprehensive uh, studies and across the entire country about well-being for young adults affected by cancer. And uh, some of his results, which were um, discussed at OMG 2012 and will be discussed again at OMG 2013, are exactly what you're, you're describing, this, this recognition that everything is, is that we like to say access to quality of life is just as important as access to quality of care. So, and that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Yeah, definitely. So, all right. So, so talk us about this. People go to your site. Let's say they are a young adult who had cancer. What What is the the thing they What's the takeaway from the Fuck Cancer website for the young adult affected by cancer? Burns, why don't you field this one? Because you you can tell it a lot better than I can, girly. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Um, I guess for me. Um, and even um you know even though I'm a part of of FC um you know I've experienced this year some some tough you know or 2012 I guess experienced some tough times and and just knowing for me that there's this community on there and just cuz sometimes even me you know working and knowing what I need to do I need to be reminded and or or I need to it's to me FC like as a young survivor um young adult survivor um I can take from there that I have somebody to be like somebody's looking out for me, and there's somebody I need to I feel accountable to in a re- really bizarre way, or it's that little, um, you know that that voice inside my head almost that says like you really need to do this, like that's sort of this I don't want to say nagging, but I, I find that it, it's a, a a reminder and it, it and it makes sure that I'm I'm doing what I need to do or. Because I had experiences where I just kind of want to just eat muffins all day and <laughs> eat donuts. Nothing wrong with that. And I call those two. No. And tubs of ice cream. more muffins than anyone I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I'll go and I, it's almost like I get a shake to the head going, well, Bernie, don't eat this, you know. And it's, for me, it's almost like a self-checker in, a, in an odd way. So obviously I can only speak to, to how the site for me is because um, every everybody's different, but um, going what I went through, going through what I went through in the summer or in the fall, I had lost a friend, and I didn't know how, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, and it's funny because you think, you know, I would sort of know, um, but that's it. Sort of gave me the communication or even just the coping skills um, in a really, really hard, tough time. Um, but, you know, like I said, everybody's different. But I know for me that, you know, it's like somebody's always there for me no matter what. So. And, and it's on your site. From the community. Sorry about that? You know, that? That's one of the, you know, there's kind of a few different veins of things we hear from the community. And um, what Byrne said is definitely one of them. And we get a lot of people thanking us, you know, for giving them a space, a safe space to come and, um, you know, to be brave and vulnerable. It's to be brave enough to, to be vulnerable, I suppose, and to learn and to talk. And a lot of the time it's, it's also about talking. It's about finding people that are like-minded and that you feel comfortable sharing this experience with because what we've found with our community is so often you're, you're much more comfortable sharing this experience with a total stranger than your closest friends. And if we can connect those total strangers that can help each other through a very difficult and traumatic time, that's, that's great. One thing I caught in your site that uh, Sophia Bush is involved with fuck cancer. Uh, what role has she played for you guys? You know, we've been really lucky with uh, a great, great group of higher-profile supporters who have shared their hearts and brains and, and uh, time and networks with us in, you know, getting out 
messages on different campaigns and helping us activate their community and our community to make a real change. I, I, I wanted to actually talk about the um, the campaign, uh, the Cancer Talk, because I found that to be one of the more compelling things you guys have ever done. You know, and I, I literally li- I live and breathe this little ecosystem of ours every day, twenty four seven. And it was just a, a real stroke of, of brilliance. It goes back to this idea of youth talking to their parents. Where did that come from? So that was actually one of my favorite campaigns we've ever done as well. It was also one of the most complex and in- <laughs> intense ones. Um, you know, we had asked kids to talk to their parents since day one. That was one of the first things we said. You know, talk to your parents about exactly the things I've been discussing on the show with you guys, family history, earliest warning signs, um, you know, all of that good stuff. And a lot of them came back to us and were like, you know, I'd really like to, but that's awkward, you know. How do I even start that conversation? And so we sat down with the team and we tried to figure out the most awkward conversations any of us had ever had and how they started to see that if, you know, there's a common thread of how to start an awkward conversation. And uh, it was one of the more amusing meetings we've ever had, but pretty unanimously we figured out that the sex talk was definitely one of the most awkward conversations any of us had ever had. And we were like, okay, there's something to this. Let's see if we can reverse engineer the sex talk. And the basic idea was your parents sat you down for the sex talk because they loved you, they cared about you, and they wanted to keep you safe, not because they particularly wanted to talk to you about sex. And now it's our turn to sit our parents down for the cancer talk. You know, it's time to make sure that our parents are being safe about cancer. And so we reverse-engineered a campaign that met all of these needs, and it was three parts. The first was a video, uh, you know, a a series of videos, I should say, um, that served as a hook for the youth. So we had 16, 18 um, of our higher-profile supporters do, you know, what we call celebrity sex videos, and basically they sat down and did a straight-to-camera where they talked about the awkward or embarrassing or disturbing or moving uh, sex talk that their parents gave them. And then they, you know, they gave a call to action, which was click here to, you know, to, to give your parents the cancer talk. And from there it linked through to the hook for the parents, which was a personalized voicemail. And we actually repurposed a political platform um, that I guess in America they use for political campaigning. But we used three of, you know, celebrity voices there that resonated more with our parents' age group. So we used Fran Drescher, Michael Winslow, and Deepak Chopra, and they recorded um, through this platform. Basically, you know, the kid went in and and inputted a bunch of information, a bunch meaning like four questions. It was pretty short. (laughs) And uh, their parents got a personalized voicemail sent to their phone from their child's phone number that said absolutely nothing about cancer. It, you know, basically said, He's lucky to have a son, daughter, catfish, whatever, you know, who cares about you so much. They've got something important to talk to you about, and it's set a time. So, you know, Wednesday at 6 p.m., your son would like to talk to you about something important. And we spent a lot of time figuring out what that voicemail was going to say, and I think one of the smartest things we did was not have it say anything about cancer because we had a ton of parents come back to us and be like, oh, God, I thought my kid was pregnant or expelled or (laughs) something terrible. Right, right, right. and so they all actually sat down and had the talk because they were so damn scared. Um, you know, so after this kid sent the voicemail, it, you know, went through the third component, which was auto-triggered emails. One went to the kid with a personalized package of what to ask your parents, what to tell them, what to discuss with them. And one went to the parent uh, from the kid's email with just a reminder of what time the, the you know, the chat was. And then a week later when the, the, the call, you know, the conversation had happened, a second set of auto-triggered emails went out, one to the kids saying, how can we do this better? And we constantly updated the campaign along the way to make sure that it was as effective as possible. And one to the parent with all of the information that their kid had just told them in writing so that they could reference back to it. Um, and that was a very long explanation, but it was a very, um, you know, it was a multi-part campaign that was one of the more successful ones we've run. So let me ask you a question. Have you found that your reach is still Canadian, or are you making inroads in the U.S.? And I, I've asked you this before, but I'd love to hear your answer. I, I, plans to sort of take over the United States? <laughs> plans to take over the world. Come on. Um, we are, we're actually definitely have a wider reach in the U.S., 
you know, we we are we're a 501c3 as well as a registered charity in Canada, so we operate in, in both. Um, and since day one, actually, we we have had a much wider pickup in the U.S. and in Canada, and um, and we're we're very thankful, you know, because that's allowed us to to grow and and um, hopefully help a lot more people. And what do you guys see as kind of your next steps? Like, what are the goals you guys want to accomplish in 2013? 2013 is a big and exciting year for us. Um, you know, we are shifting. We're not shifting our focus. We're expanding our focus. So we're going to continue to have our early detection and prevention resources and assets available, and we'll run great partnership campaigns around those, you know, those areas. But we're really excited to build some some great platforms that allow our community to better interact and, um, you know, exchange information and, and stories and, and support with each other. Um, so, you know, in terms of the, the psychosocial and the communication of cancer, and that's where we're going to be really building this year. And we have a few a few really exciting things in the, in the pipeline. Well, that's very, very cool. What would you say the biggest challenges have been? I mean, and I'll, I'll just see this by the challenges that I've gone through, and I love the way you articulate on your website that you don't build wells. I like to talk about how, you know, we're not Habitat for Humanity. We don't build houses. There are these social intangibles that are the outcomes of our, our goodwill and our mission. Uh, that, that sort of plays into, like, well, what do you really do? Where does your money really go? And have you found that that has been uh, a, a, a difficult narrative? To some extent. I mean, I think that we're really, as a society, we want to see where our money is going. Um, and part of that is because we haven't seen where our money is going for a very long time. You know, the traditional charity space is pretty, you know, there's a lack of transparency and accountability, and, and there's a huge shift now towards total transparency and accountability, and we want to see what you do with our dollars. And when you build educational resources and digital platforms and communities with those dollars, um, there's nothing to hold in your hand. And, and that sometimes takes people a while to wrap their head around. But, you know, the best way I can explain it is that Firstly, we, I mean, we run incredibly lean. We do not fundraise very much at all. Um, and our people are our largest assets. So our team who, who you know, creates these infographics and these digital communities and these digital platforms and campaigns um, and really has helped, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at this point is people. We're people-powered. And um, so that is, that's where your donations are going, to building and uh, continuing to create and help our community but it's definitely difficult for for people at first and it's i think a challenge for a lot of organizations like yours and ours that don't create a tangible product we we create an intangible one that i think is is very valuable as well right and 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 that's the whole point is is trying to explain you know how does a charity do good without a product and that's sort of the new way of thinking and and you know because you're more of a social enterprise than a give us money cancer research bucket. You know, that again that goes back to how we were you know, we're we're during our sixth year now and it's still kind of difficult for people to understand, oh, you fund research? No, 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 we don't fund research. There's more to the cure than yeah. research, you know, that kind of conversation. So well, our I, entire operating budget for last year probably would have been one person's salary in a traditional research oriented cancer organization. And you know, we we impacted and, and affected and helped literally hundreds of thousands of lives last year. And I think it's great that we start shifting away from the fact that we think we have to build something tangible to do any good. Um, we we have to also focus inward and understand what, what a lot of these pathologies and, and diseases do to us as humans, not our bodies, but our hearts and souls and brains and minds. And one of the other things that you guys have on your site is uh, start a chapter. Bring, uh, you know, fuck cancer to your hometown. What's been the response? that you guys have had from that? Have you guys had, you know, meetups or events and get-togethers, whether it be in Canada, the U.S.? Definitely. I mean, we have, there's the chapters in the FCIs, which are, you know, independently awesome, how we call them, and that's when our community members throw events for us or put together meetups or tweet-ups or, you know, whatever it may be. And that's actually been incredibly successful and it's a great source of revenue for us. You know, it's the 200 to $2,000 that are raised at these, um, you know, local events by our unbelievably dedicated community and it's a way for people to to get involved in you know on their on their micro level because every community is different and, and nobody knows better how to 
you know, create something that resonates with their specific demographic and community than somebody who lives there. Well, we have about like a minute or two left. I just wanted to, hey, I wanted to congratulate you, first of all, because the Fast Company Top 100 Creative People, that was a big deal. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Did, you did, did they surprise you by that, or you kind of knew? Um, well, I knew before it came out because we had done the interview and, and the, the video and everything, but I was, I mean, ecstatic when they told me. I was very, very, very surprised, and I was convinced they had the wrong price. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I... It, it was really, really kind of them and a great validation of what we're building and, and um, that our community is leading us in the right way and we're going to continue to, to build and grow and, and help our absolutely amazing cancer fuckers. All right. Well, my last question for you is do you have any plans or what has been the response from the medical community? Have you dealt with nurses, social workers, oncologists, not directly per se, but I, I assume many of them know about you at this point. What, what has been the response uh, and your strategy with that? You know, it depends, again, on who it is, if it's a nurse, if it's an oncologist, if it's, a, you know, a, an alternative practitioner, if it's, uh, you know, your your GP, depending on what it is. Um, and it also depends on how old they are and where they were educated, to be very honest. Um, we take a much, I guess, more progressive stance, uh, and we encourage our community to ask questions and be very active in, in making their, their treatment decisions. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time, your doctors want you to listen to them and trust them, and and that's fantastic. And and but getting a second opinion is never a bad thing, and it's not offensive, and it's not a, a reflection of your trust in your doctor. You know, we get a second opinion from a mechanic or the guy who paints your house. You can replace your house or your car. Why don't you get a second opinion from your doctor? Because you cannot replace your body. Well, that uh, goes back so, to uh, just to interject that that's the Chris Carr theory, which is that you are when you get diagnosed. Um, you become the Save My Ass Incorporated, <laughs> and you have to. Be, and your doctors are I interviewing love for the She's job. She's on our board. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we have an. I mean, there's tons of. We have a medical advisory board. We have our, you know, wellness advisory board. We have a lot of doctors and medical practitioners who advise us and help us build this. So we 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 couldn't do it without them. Very cool. Well, i got to tell you guys, I'm really excited we had you on the show. I can't wait to see you guys again. I don't know if you're making it to Vegas, but it would be super cool if you showed up there. There's going to be tons of people who are probably already huge fans of yours that would absolutely adore the chance to to socialize with you guys. We are going to do our very best because we definitely would love to see you again very soon as well. It's a big Thank party. It's a big party with lots yeah. of alcohol. <laughs> Kenny will be very thrilled to be there. Huh. <laughs> See you there, hopefully. <laughs> It'll be a good time. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh, we will. This will be in syndication. We'll send you the link to, to send that out there to your loving masses. And good luck to you with everything you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And um, we're really looking forward to chatting again soon. Phenomenal. Yale Cohn and Bernie Leno from Fuck Cancer. Fantastic. You know, it just—it really does raise the issue of you know stage one and stage mm-hmm. two and stage three, stage four, the role of the parents, the role we have over our parents. You know, I've been um, I've been in conversations with a lot of pharma companies about what role the young adult community, whether they've had cancer or not, can play in the shaping of their older parents' opinions on wellness, compliance, taking pills, seeing mm-hmm. doctors, because that's like the the. Uh, they would call it the undiscovered country. What role does the youth culture, Gen X, Gen Y, have on the boomers from a health perspective? Yeah, I'm always pushing people, especially people I know who are older who might smoke. Right. Always convincing them, you have to quit. I never smoked. I, you know, lived a relatively healthy-ish life. I'm not going to pretend that I was perfect, but, you know, there are so many things that, as young people, we have all this information that we could pass on to people to really take charge of your health, and that is very important for us to do, and it's part of our responsibility. Well, it also comes down to the fact that young adults who have had cancer or chronic disease mm-hmm. of any kind, whether it's like diabetes, type 1, or lupus, or whatever, MS, excuse me, um, you know, does that give the boomer parent a heightened sense of awareness about self-risk? You know, how many, rhetorically, how many boomers who smoke had a kid who got cancer and stopped smoking because their kid got cancer? Unrelated to anything. Mm-hmm. You know, do you really need that to happen to quit smoking? Or, you know, that that's the part that fascinates me. The part that I really see stupid hands are growing 
in the long term is really, you know, what role can we play to help the young adults who have parents that are sick or parents that might be sick in addition to young adults who are sick themselves? Yeah, that's really important. It is really interesting to see how people's behavior change when someone they know who is a young adult uh, is diagnosed with cancer. It's very fascinating to see how their behavior, whether it be eat healthier, lose weight, which right. is obviously a huge issue in the United States, whether it be, you know, cutting out processed foods or stop drinking soda and, stop, you know, stop smoking, maybe cut back on drinking, blah, all the different things that are considered unhealthy. Right. Well, um, what did you say, Kenny, the Taco Bell Chalupa Taco Deep Fried Pizza thing? That sounds good. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's on my walk home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, this has been a great show. I'm sorry we missed Salvatore. We'll try to hunt him down and figure out what happened. We'll have him another time. Another time. Another time. All right. Well, that is tonight's show. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Kenny? (laughs) (laughs) I've been up since 4 a.m. Okay, folks, that's tonight's show, our 252nd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking your stick at stupid cancer. like to thank all of our guests, Yale Cohen and Bernie Leno. And on next week's show, join us as we welcome young adult survivor, chef, and restaurateur Eric Levine, winner of the Food Network Chops, which is an amazing show, and proprietor at Morris Tappan Grill in New Jersey. Also is Hans Rufert, author proprietor at the Woodbridge in North Carolina. And also joining us in the Survivor Spotlight is Jen Smith, a breast cancer survivor and author of Learning to Live Legendary. Fantastic. If you missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you all here back next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night. So.